This is where Hollywood hides. Chicken joke! I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. Baby, you're the great. Go to the judge. Small cowbell. That special. There's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no business I know. And as always, our thanks to Ethel Merman for that. Today we're back to finish the discussion about Falcon Crest. Uh, we'll be touching upon some more behind-the-scenes stuff and the guest stars that were on the show. But first, this from Bill Conti. <laughs> And this is podcast number nine of Where Hollywood Hides. Yay, we're that, getting up to nine. Yeah, that was Bill Conti's theme music for Falcon Crest, which we're going to continue talking about today. I just want to say one thing about Bill Conti. You are not going to believe the stuff he wrote before he did Falcon Crest. Before we go on, um, just a reminder uh-huh. to our growing audience and listeners, be sure to check out our website at www.wherehollywoodhides.com. I can say that fast now. For show notes, photos, and the latest showbiz news. Uh, So please click on the Amazon banner to take you directly to the world's best and biggest online shopping mall. Whatever you're looking for, from books, movies, pet supplies, it's all on Amazon.com. The links at wherehollywoodhide.com are the quickest way to do your shopping. You'll be glad you did, and so will we. And by the way, I got a pair of shoes. Oh, really? They were a little pricey. Just, but you got them through the website? Yeah. Cool. But just a warning. Yes, but you didn't go to See, Amazon. You can't yell at me when we're okay, but you on the air. But you didn't go to Amazon.com directly, did you? No. You went to our website. Exactly. And that's what we want everybody who's listening to do. That's right. Any fool can go to Amazon.com. That's right. So but, is this a write-off? I can get all the shoes I yes, want? Yes, but only our audience can go to wherehollywoodhides.com, click on any of our links, and do all their shopping, which helps the podcast. Matter of fact, right. we also just got two books uh, delivered today, and the packaging is always incredible, and so is the service. So we're huge fans, huge fans. So, uh, you know, I want to tell you something. Our audience in the last three weeks has tripled. Is he alive still? Yes, and your favorite, he did the music to Rocky. Oh, I love Rocky. Who doesn't like Rocky? Now, come on. So when they got Bill Conti to do the Falcon Crest music, they were getting the best, and that's one reason I think that theme music is so kind of a signature still today. Was Rocky before or after Falcon Crest? Rocky was in 76. So Falcon Crest didn't start until 81, 82. Ooh, it must have been expensive to get him by that time. I would imagine. I would imagine. But, you know, they had Dallas. Lorimar and CBS had Dallas as a hit, kind of as a prelude to Falcon Crest. So they knew that they had to spend good money to get good music. So. Right. Well, I love both those movies and the he, TV uh, he, show. He did the theme music for Dynasty, the Colbys, Cagney and Lacey. He won an Oscar for the... Uh, for composing the right stuff. So the guys the guy came to our show with a huge track record. So let's I have a little trivia question for you. Uh oh. I just found out. Uh pop quizzes. Okay. I know you love the graduate with Dustin Hoffman. Yes, I did. Do you know whose leg it was 
on the graduates poster with Dustin Hoffman in the background. You know that famous poster where sure. there's a leg that's bent and he's right. behind there. That's supposed to be Mrs. Robinson's. Right. Um, so you're telling me it wasn't... It was in 1967, the movie. Yeah. And it was supposed to be Mrs. Mrs. Robinson, Robinson and Bancroft. So it wasn't her leg. I don't know. What do you think? Probably not her leg is my guess. And why would that be? Why uh, would would you... it be Catherine Ross's leg? So the, the, the ingenue oh, in the movie? Oh, she was cute, wasn't she? I liked she? her. I liked her. Actually, it was Linda Gray. Linda Gray from Dallas? Dallas, yes. You're kidding. Yes, she was on some talk shows lately, and uh, she admitted to that. And guess how much they paid her? I would hope a lot. It's a nice looking leg. Well, for one leg, they paid her $25. You're, oh, my God. <laughs> well, but that was a long time ago. Wow. They asked her why Anne Bancroft didn't do it, and she yeah. said she thinks she was sick that day, and they were planning to do it. And she was an wow. upcoming actress, like I was. She did leg, <laughs> but you did, you did all kinds of hand inserts and... Body doubling yes. and stuff. Again, I was almost, almost famous. The she, difference between Linda Gray and I is Linda Gray got casted for uh, Dallas. Dallas. And you didn't. They didn't call me back. Hey, you know who else did not get cast for Dallas? Who? Who turned it down? Who? Robert Foxworth. Right, you mentioned they, they that. Wa- they wanted him for JR, and he turned it down. So once Dallas became a huge hit, I think he reconsidered his ambitions and accepted the role of Chase Giaberti in Falcon Crest. So let's talk about the beautiful location that we spent three years during the summer. Up in the Napa Valley. Right. Well, the Napa Valley is like the, it's the Amer- North America's premier wine growing region. And since the show was about the wine culture and vineyards and wineries, they sent location scouting crew up there. By the time you got on the show, which was kind of on the beginning, yeah. did they already have the location? No, they didn't have anything. Uh, Barry Steinberg and Mac Harding were the line producers, so they sent location scouts all over the state looking for the best place to shoot. And I think Lorimar and CBS both wanted a real legitimate you know, wine country look. And the only place to find that at the time was up in the Napa Valley. And it was fairly close to Los Angeles well, compared Cal- to... Yeah, it was in California. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, today, I think, because the you know vineyards have kind of exploded all over California since Falcon Crest, and maybe Falcon Crest was part of the reason for that, you could probably shoot that show today in uh, Santa Ines Valley or up in Ballard. There's an awful lot of wineries up there now. At the time, did they have the kind of homes? No, they didn't have anything. I mean, it was just, it was cowboys out I mean, in San I mean, I love San Ines. Yeah, but back in the 80s, it was strictly you know, horse country. Now it's a lot of wine country. So I remember our first year up there, we would shoot on the set. Yeah, on the they, they found Spring Mountain Winery. No, at, but I'm talking about they would shoot on the set at the studio. In Burbank, right. In Burbank. Right. And then they would shoot what scenes? Well, all the exteriors. They did all the exteriors up on and location. How about the house inside? That was all built on the stages in Burbank Studios. Uh-huh. So we did all the interiors first, and then we went up there in the summer and did all the exteriors. All we did some spectacular interiors. We were inside the Schramsberg Winery and Christian Brothers Winery. I remember those interiors we shot up there. I remember we shot a lot uh, on the porch, the actual porch. At Spring Mountain right. Winery, yeah, yeah. So we kind of got in the house. It was kinda, on the porch. You got to get in the house. Uh, most of the cast didn't, but you and Jane Wyman used to go in there to get out of the heat and things like that, but... Uh, spectacular location for sure. Right. So I remember the first year we went there, our housing was at a motel. Yeah, we were kind of at a Holiday Inn. We Express. were on a real budget. Well, the show was just kind of getting on its feet, and the studio was pretty budgetarily concerned. You know, they want to didn't want to spend a lot of money. I mean, Jane Wyman cost a lot of money, so 
they kind of had to be careful. Um, but we were very welcomed in the town, I remember. Well, everybody up there from Napa to St. Helena to Calistoga, uh, the entire valley kind of welcomed us because you bring money. I remember we had quite an education on wine. Everywhere we were, we, we were invited to more wine tours. Everybody we met wanted private to wine tours. I remember. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember we had our spectacular lunch one day. Uh, Mel Ferrer arranged just for you and me personally, and I think David Selby and Jane Wyman came with us. And Mel and his wife. Yeah, and, Lisa. And uh, we had a fantastic lunch. It was right out of a movie. I felt like I was in The Godfather at the home of Robert Mondavi, probably one of the seminal characters up there, one of the original families in the Napa Valley. And the wine just kept coming. It was great. It was everything about it was just. I wanted to freeze time. It was. I, I really did feel like I was in a movie. And did we, or did the company make Falcon Crest wine? Yeah. Uh, no, Spring Mountain Winery actually made, they bottled an Appalachian. I think there was a white and a red, and they put a beautiful label on bottles, and they called it Falcon Crest wine. That was, I think that came the second year after the show was mm-hmm. pretty much a hit. So the first year, we yeah, we stayed in like a Holiday Inn with a little tiny oval pool, and it was it was pretty tacky. Um, but it was still fun. It was great because, you know, the crew's a lot of fun, and, and we pretty well owned that hotel, so every night was a little bit of a party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, after the show was on for a year and we were a hit, I think we debuted at number 10 or number 7. We debuted in the top 10. A lot, Obviously, a lot of audience interest right after Dallas. They wanted to see Jane Wyman in a new series. Sure. And, um, so once we were a hit, things pretty well changed. Then we went to the Silverado. Then we went to the Silverado A spectacular, kind of reminded me of Gone with the Wind. It was. It felt like you're on a plantation down a south. A white, beautiful huge, building. A huge place with golf, three... Golf? Golf course. Two golf courses. Swimming tw- pools. 24 tennis courts, a couple of swimming pools, three or four restaurants. So we pretty much took over the whole place. Well, actually, everybody, uh, at least you and I, we had our own... Kind of like a house, didn't we? we but had, so did everybody else. Yeah, that they were was like on. they were like uh, not condos, but you had like a two bedroom place. Like little cottages. Yeah, it was. And it the was, actors did too. We were in our own little neighborhood. It was really pretty lovely. It was very nice. If you like greenery, the Silverado Inn is the place to be. Right. I remember we would get stacks of cases of wine from every vineyard possible. Right. Right. And we couldn't drink nearly enough of it, but it was it was we were treated very very well. And was, we went there three years in a row. Three years in a row. Uh, and they continued to go after I had left the show. So I think the Napa Valley really uh, benefited greatly from the exposure. Uh, it helped it become really a tourist mecca. I mean, you and I just went up there last year, and the traffic was unbelievable. And we stayed at the Silverado again. And yes, thing, we did. And things hadn't changed very much. It was The service was still impeccable. They greet you in the driveway, and they know your name before you get to the to the registration desk. So you think they they were paying us to yeah. say nice things? You would, about you them. would, you would. But it it was pretty cool, pretty cool place, and I'd recommend it to anybody. It's a great place to go. Real vacation spot. So our weekends up there, I remember Jane would go to church, the Catholic Church, every Sunday, and she wouldn't go alone. And I was Catholic, right? So I um, accompanied her. And we prayed. <laughs> you were her little Catholic friend. Well, I was used to doing that when I was really young. I yeah. had gotten away from it a little bit, but it was fine. It was I think good. I slept in, I think, didn't I? Yes, Because you, did. you guys went to the fairly early Mass. 
Right. Because Jane was used to, right. you know, regular studio hours. You would meet us afterwards for lunch. Right, right. Do you remember? Gee, the lunches were fabulous, but I remember um, one year Maureen, her uh-huh. daughter, came. Well, Jane announced that Maureen was coming. Right. We said, okay. We didn't and, know what that really meant. Right. And yeah. then apparently the Secret Service got a hold of one of the producers. Right. And it was a very, very big deal to have the the sitting president's daughter come on a set and she had automatic secret service on her at all times so when she came to the set it was quite a it was deal. it was three or four black suburbans and a half a dozen guys speaking into their lapels and jane was a little i don't think she was irritated but it wasn't something that she was accustomed to and she certainly didn't want the extra notoriety and she and I remember her telling the producer, you tell those Secret Service guys to stay out of my way. Well, pretty hard to tell those guys anything. But, you know, Maureen was fun to have around because she was very so well-spoken and articulate. Very bright. Really bright, really protective of her mother. And somewhat, uh, she wasn't embarrassed, but she was always apologizing for the inconvenience of dragging around all these Secret Service guys. So by that time... Everybody, Ronald Reagan was our president. Mm-hmm. Everybody was dying to ask Jane what he was like. And only you had the, I don't want to say balls, but only you had the temerity to ask her. Well, she had been <laughs> married to him, and I had spent quite a, lo- a lot of alone time with her. So I remember after Maureen left. We had dinner, right? Yes, and I had a couple glasses of wine. And so did she. And I asked her. What was it like being married to Ronald Reagan? She didn't flinch, did she? No, she didn't say much either. She said, well, just like this, well, he was a great swimmer, but he didn't know how to balance his checkbook. Right. That was and it. And that was it. And that was it. And I'm just hanging there we wanting were, more. Right, and that right. that was it. Yeah, but, you know, she was very private. Very classy, very private. It never said a, I'd never heard her say a bad word about anybody. But she would have other people say things for her. But but you would know if she was unhappy. Oh, for sure. She'd call me over. She'd crook her finger and say, Bobby, I need to talk to you. And she'd whisper in my ear whatever it was she needed. And we got it handled. But mm-hmm. she was, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, she was an Academy Award winning actress kind of risking everything to appear in a television series. And it wasn't very common at that point no. for major motion picture stars to do television like it has become today. Right. So The show had quite a few guest stars. Lana Turner, of course, was huge. Right. Want to tell you a little story about Lana Turner? Well, uh, she came in to play Chase Gioberti's mother, Jacqueline Perrault. I love that name. Right. Well, we made that name up. Of you course. Know. Just very briefly before Lana came on the show... Uh, We were still in Burbank, and it was kind of that stunt casting thing, and everybody was aware of it. But, you know, having Jane Wyman in the series was a huge leverage point for us. Uh, We thought we might be able to go get somebody as well-known as Lana Turner. And Lana Turner had a huge profile from her movies in the 40s when she played the Platinum Blonde. And she'd also been involved in uh, some scandal, if you remember, in the 60s, when I was in high school, going to school, uh, her daughter was just a year or two ahead of me at Beverly High. Johnny Stampanato was Lana Turner's boyfriend, and somehow he wound up stabbed to death in Lana Turner's house. And We're going way back now. Well, we're going back. This is 62. In 1962, uh, this murder took place, and the suspicion was that Lana Turner did it, uh, and they had some kind of drunken brawl. And basically, Jerry Giesler, her attorney, hung the whole thing on the daughter, who was a minor at the time. And 
by hook or by crook, she was exonerated. And so there, so my point is, Lana Turner had a lot of fame. And when she was considered for the part, Jane Wyman wasn't particularly thrilled because some of the fame was scandalous. So what was like when they were on the set? Well, when they were on the set, it was uh, initially fa- fairly tense because we suddenly had this a lot of media scrutiny because everybody was predicting disaster. And guess who was in the middle of all that? Yours truly. Right. Uh, I remember the very first day that Lana was in her dressing room getting ready to come out and Jane was in her dressing room. Now it's probably 8, 8.30 in the morning and we're getting ready to shoot the first scene. And I went to Lana Turner and she was so slow in getting ready. She was really dragging things out, having one cigarette after another. And I could tell the real problem was she was just nervous as hell. She was she was afraid, basically, of not hitting her marks, of not knowing her dialogue. And she was very kind of childlike, I thought. And she was Jane's age. She was in her 70s at that time. And, you know, you and I had gone to her apartment in Century City and talked to her about what the show was going to be like and how she was going to be treated and what her character was and kind of convincing her to do it. So the morning of the shoot, Jane's in her dressing room, and she has not yet come out, and she was usually the first out. And it became a little bit of a pas de deux, a dance, if you will, getting each of these... Who was going to come out first? Exactly, getting each one to come out without without knowing where the other one was. So, But my point is, the very first day, they both did come out, and it was this huge sigh of relief. And I just explained to Jane, Lana's really nervous. She's really kind of afraid of you. And then Jane relaxed, and she kind of took Lana under her wing. As I remember... Uh, she was in six episodes. Is that all? That's it. Yeah, well, I think uh, Lana wasn't used to the schedule. And Jane, frankly, was a lot tougher physically and uh, spiritually. She had real strength. Jane was the leader of that show. In terms of uh, star power, Cesar Romero was in 51 episodes. Yeah, yeah. What now did he, he play? Well, he came, I in, he came in after I left. He came in in like season four mm-hmm. and five, kind of replaced the Mel Ferrer character I see. as Jane's romantic interest. And then Rod Taylor, Morgan Fairchild, mm-hmm. now Cliff Robertson. You have a Cliff s- Robertson was story uh, about that. another Academy Award winner they recruited. PT 109. He always one, played right? Kennedy. Right, and won the Academy Award for playing Charlie. And my first my first meeting with him was at the studio and kind of explaining the character of Michael Ranson, uh, what he was going to be involved in. And he his character was going to have a May December relationship with a younger woman. That was Laura Johnson, who was kind of this uh, up and coming ingenue. And I remember we're up on location in Napa Valley, and we had an outside scene to play between Cliff Robertson and Laura Johnson. And, and there the, was quite an age difference. Well. Uh, f- at least 40 years, right? And That's a lot. Well, yeah. And, and Cliff Robertson was a little scared of the whole thing because the very first scene he was going to play with Laura Johnson involved a kiss. And we could not get him to come out of his dressing room either. And I had to go talk to Cliff. And he said, Bob, I can't do the scene. I, how, I can't possibly kiss this young girl. So I he was concerned of the public's perception. He was just nervous. Of, the, of him being too old being right. somebody too young and, right. it, and it wasn't quite that common like it is now he was very like the anxious. word cougar was not no, out no, yet no, no. he was he was just very anxious and also again here's an academy award winning feature film actor now doing television how is he going to be perceived a lot of those kind of misgivings among some of these um, high profile movie stars so i had to kind of uh, encourage cliff 
that this was really just an, an acting performance and that the scene as written would work very well. And he's, he was just so nervous about kissing her. I said, Cliff, how many times does anybody get to kiss a girl this pretty? Just go for it. And he said, are you sure? Is it going to be okay? And he went out there and he kissed her. And it was a spectacular scene. And he was, after the scene, of course, uh, when they yelled cut, he looked over at me and gave me kind of a wink like, can we have a take two on this? But he was a terrific guy, uh, great attitude and great spirit. And I, I felt very honored to be working with people of that caliber. Now, I, I remember that some of the actors uh, were extremely quick studies. Very. And Cliff Robertson needed uh, cue cards. Well, which was not unusual. Hey, Marlon Brando in uh, Last Tango in Paris, he does this huge soliloquy over his dead wife's body, and all the script was taped to the ceiling above her. Sure. It happened a lot. Robert Loggia, uh, we, inside of a phone booth scene we did, we had the script. I just remember walking on the set and having these huge cue cards with huge writing, and he was older. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a special job for who would have done that? Props. Props. And they were there, and I remember Jane uh, saying that she wanted them to look nice. Right. Their hair combed. Right. Because she had to look at them. Wow. <laughs> right. Cliff Robertson was doing his lines. Right, right. It, it didn't happen a lot. Right. Uh, certainly Susan Sullivan, Robert Fox, or David Selby. But does it mean they that did, you're did. a bad actor at no, all? No, it just means, you know, sometimes it's hard to focus. You have a, 120 people standing around. It's very hot in Napa Valley in the summer. So to overcome the... Any production delays or constant retakes, it's a lot easier sometimes just to use cue cards. So, you know, you had a lot of guest stars over the years. Uh, Falcon Crest had Ann Archer of, um, what was that? Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction was a big movie. Mm -hmm. And um, many, many others. But one in particular story, Shannon Tweed. Oh, you know, that was the first year we were shooting up there. And Shannon Tweed, this is 81, 82, she was Playmate of the Year. And, And to bring it... To full circle, yeah. uh, she has a reality show with her very longtime partner, Gene, Gene Simmons, Simmons right. of KISS. Right. No, no, she's become a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, but back then, she was a girl from a mink farm in Nova Scotia who's, I they, think... Is this like where they raise mink and kill they raise, them? Yeah, mink farms, yeah. They kill them. That's how they make mink coats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's where she was raised. She was not very sophisticated. I think her sister sent some pictures of her into Playboy, and Playboy said, yeah, get her to New York, and we'll take pictures of her, and they did. And she became a playmate. Next thing you know, you're playmate of the year, and next thing you know, you're dating Hugh Hefner. And because she was dating Hugh Hefner, she got an interview with Lorimar and CBS, and they said, gee, can you write a part for her in Falcon Crest? Well... We'll give it a shot. Oh, you Jane know. must have loved that. Uh, Jane was a little, uh, she was quiet on the subject. I'll put it that <laughs> right. way. But the day that she was cast was uh, memorable. I'll put it that way. Well, let's just say you didn't stop talking about it for at least a week. Well, it was very unusual. We're in the offices at Burbank Studios, a little bungalow. Earl Hamner, who had the biggest office in the building. And, you know, Earl was a real uh, Southern gentleman from Virginia, very proper uh, I mean, he actually wore a necktie in the office occasionally. And so we're having a casting session, and we are going to meet Shannon Tweed. And she walks in, and Earl himself is 6'2", and Shannon Tweed is a full six feet tall. She walks in, and she looks like a Playmate model. She's I'm, beautiful. Her hair is blown out. It's long. It's got the Farrah Fawcett hairdo. And we sit and we start to talk, and she explains a little bit about where she's from, and we're all kind of amused. We'd never met anybody from Nova Scotia before. And uh, you guys were all, I'm sure, with your tongues hanging well, out. Well, she had this, you know, she had 25 layers of lip gloss. 
And oh, she, Bob, you were really looking at the and lips. And she says, would you like to see my photograph, my pictures? Her portfolio. Her portfolio. Yeah. She's carrying like a big model portfolio. In those days, they used to do that. It was, it's like, you know, 30 by 40 I'm inches. I'm sure they still do that. I'm, I don't I'm know. Sure. And so Earl says, well, sure, we'd love to see your portfolio. And she opens it up and she says, I hope you'll excuse the nudes. And we all kind of gulp and she starts flipping through these Playmate nudes. Spectacular and er- looking. Earl turns purple. He is so embarrassed. He is so embarrassed. And of course, you were so cool and calm. He and I look at each other, and we, without saying a word, we are telling each other, she's getting the part. You see, that's so unfair. <laughs> right. Well, it's so it worked. It's so Hollywood. She knew how to market herself. From, you know, Mink Farm or not, she knew what she was doing. But the, So the first day we wind up in, in Napa, this is season one, we're in this motel, and we're, we have a little production office, and she's being driven up from the airport. And she comes in the office and she says, oh, hi, Bob. Good to see you again. And she says, I, I, I have a question. Sure, whatever. What are all the plants I see? She, the, she, the, vineyards, the vineyards. Right. She had never seen a vineyard or anything like it. Like in Nova Scotia, they don't grow much, which is probably why they raise little animals. I don't know. Anyway, so I had to explain to her what the grapes were about and what wine was about, as well as explain to her that you don't look into the camera when you're doing your scenes. I mean, she had never done anything on film, so she was really nervous about the whole thing. And I kind of explained to her that there going to be a lot of people on the set helping you, and all you have to do is listen to the director. One thing you don't want to do is look into the camera lens. Did Hugh Hefner ever come and visit? Uh, he did come to visit, yeah. He was very quiet, very private, uh, puffing away on his pipe, pipe you know. Wait, that guy's still at it. I talked to him at, at the time. I talked to him a couple, you know, for a few minutes at a time. But I was pretty busy making sure the dialogue is getting read properly and rewriting scenes. But he was a perfect gentleman, uh, obviously watching out for his Playmate of the Year. And, of course, the Playmate of the Year does the same thing that Maureen Reagan did. It brought a lot of press to the set. So we had a tremendous amount of press coverage. And I'll try to put some of that stuff up on the website. Sure. Uh, before we go on, I do want to say that today's podcast is brought to everybody by Audible.com. If you go to our website, wherehollywoodhides.com, you'll see a link in the upper right-hand corner, and you can get a free audiobook download right there. They have over 100,000 book titles, and you can download them as MP3s. You can get them for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, and the free audiobook alone is worth 10 bucks. All they want you to do is register, give them your email address, and you're off and running. And I think you'll find it really valuable. I personally never listen to the radio anymore. I just listen to books on tape. So go to wherehollywoodhides.com, click on the audible.com link, and you'll get your free download. They've got, as I said, over 100,000 titles, and you can get The Hobbit, which must be eight hours of you know, listening pleasure. And they've got the new Jack Reacher novel, which is Tom Cruise's new movie. Although I don't think it's doing very well, but the novels are very popular. He's still pretty cute, though. Yep, yep. I'm sure it won't be his last movie. That's for no, sure. No, no. That's for sure. Tom will always be around. Yeah. I do remember the, uh, that first year up in Napa Valley, David Selby came to the location. And that was, uh, we were both runners at the time. And he and I would go out for these. You mean joggers. Joggers, right. He and I would go out for these long jogs, these runs together, and just talk about. Where was I? Um, Asleep? Could have been, or you could have been in the pool or at the bar. I'm not sure oh, where you were. You were probably, you know what? You were probably with Jane Wyman. Maybe. Yeah, taking care of her because she had to have, I don't want to say she had to have an escort and you weren't her bodyguard, but you were certainly her friend. Well, she wanted some company. Yeah, you were her friend. So anyway, David and I went for the long runs and talked about the characters and talked about, you know, how he should play the character of Richard Channing. So he was a very thoughtful guy. I wonder if he's still running. I hope not. 
Well, those of us who used to run a lot. We're suffering now. We're paying for it. Big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you had uh, quite a great writing staff, as I remember. Well, we had, you know, a, a show like that requires a lot of script attention because it's really, the, the storyline is really told through the dialogue. The soap operas weren't told with a lot of action. It wasn't the most cinematic kind of storytelling. Yeah, we had Ernie Wallengren was on the staff. Uh, his parents had been writers on the Waltons with Earl. There's kind of a family connection there. Ernie himself had written some Walton's episodes, so we had to kind of toughen him up so he could write this nighttime soap stuff. And then he was we, so young, I remember. He was very young, uh, phenomenal piano player and a pretty good writer. And probably the strongest writer we had on staff was Garner Simmons. Uh, he and I became very close and kind of learned to collaborate so we could rewrite scenes very quickly. Uh, when he came up to location, I don't think he saw much of the Napa Valley because we pretty well had him locked down to an office and a a typewriter. This is pre-computers. Can you believe that? Yes, I can. And uh, Garner was the rewrite guy for sure, for sure. And the cast liked him a lot because he was a good listener. And that's half the ticket when the cast has, quote, problems with their dialogue. What they really want is a little psychiatry. So in between you jogging with David Selby Uh and me attending the Catholic Church with Jane, right? We did manage to take a few little trips. Yeah, we had some and, good weekends. Uh, yeah, you were very, very anxious to take a hot uh, balloon, hot air balloon, hot air balloon trip. Well, yeah, because that wasn't too crazy about well, it. Well, they but, advertise it all over the valley. Everybody was doing it. Um, half the cast had done it. Oh yeah, yeah. So and I, the crew was doing it. Yeah, the hardest thing about it for me was it, it, they only go like at dawn. It's really early in the morning. It can't be too windy. Right, right. So you it ha- can't be too still. So you know, the weekends come. You think you're going to get some sleep, but we said let's just we'll give up a morning sleep we'll go hot air ballooning and i think it was for a birthday or anniversary or something we wanted to celebrate something and we drove up to calistoga where they launch all these things and this is like at dawn it was early yeah yeah and you remember we got in the basket and and the thing is blowing this hot flame up into the balloon and it's spectacular the balloon is huge and you're in this basket and what did we do well, I felt like I was in the Wizard of Oz for one thing. Well, we look getting ready to take off. Right, we're still on the ground. The basket is on the ground, and we're inside the basket. And the top of the basket it was too low. It hits us in the middle of the thigh. Sure, felt like that way. And we're thinking we could fall out right here. It was too low. What's it going to be like if it we're eight hundred feet in the air? Too low. Yeah, so we, we got off. We that said, was so embarrassing. We said thank you very much. We don't want to go. We kind of chickened out of the whole thing. Did we leave, get our money back or did we just leave? I'm not sure. I, I, what I am sure of is we went and had breakfast. And a little oh, bit more. Remember where we used to love to go to breakfast? The it diner. Was a diner. The what diner. was the name of it? The diner? It was called The Diner. Yeah. With, um, oh, it was the best oatmeal I've ever had. Yeah, that was in St. Helena. The diner, it, was, it was on the main highway there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another adventure of ours, we went to the mud baths in Calistoga. That was creepy. Wasn't that lovely? It was. It's a bathtub full of mud. It was. It was a really well-known place, and you would go and sit in these tubs of mud. Basically, the, I think the idea was to leach the toxins out of your body. And or something. And while we were both laying there, I think one of us said, "Do you think this is new mud, or do you <laughs> think there's other people in this mud? Because how can they flesh it out and it's, put new mud?" It was used mud, and I. What really proved it to me was I kind of let myself sink down into it a little bit to get the full effect of the mud, and I could see hair sticking out of the surface of this goo. And that pretty well did it for me, because it wasn't my hair. 
I'm really surprised that you did it at all because you had to get undressed and get in the mud and you know it wasn't like you go in fully prude huh you didn't well you don't go in fully clothed and you come out and then they have to hose you off oh whoa that was that was difficult yeah it kind of sucked kind of sucked Anyway, so uh, we were better off jogging and going to church. Right, right. Then I had my bike up there. It was perfect bicycling country. That's right. For sure. That's right. So we went to Napa Valley three, uh, three years in a row, and then things started to change for you. Well, what well, happens? For us. Yeah, what happens is when a show is not a hit, everybody says, yeah, well, go for it, do whatever you want, that sort of thing. And uh, there isn't a lot of competitive environment. When a show becomes a hit, suddenly we're getting all kinds of awards. The show's winning Golden Globes. It's being nominated for Emmys. Uh, The music is getting awards. And we're getting all kinds of publicity. And everybody's pretty much under a microphone, uh, a microscope. I remember, uh, I mean, the show won the Golden Globes in 85. In 84, Jane Wyman won the Golden Globe for Best Performance. Uh, Do you remember who presented her with the Golden Globe? It was Lana Turner. Oh, that's right. And that was a big, that's big... That's right. It was kind of like the peace pipe thing. Oh, yeah. my God. I remember yeah. you had to go backstage. Well, I know, yeah. that, I know that both of them were anxious to dispel the rumor that they'd had this long feud. Because there wasn't really a feud at all. But it was a great thing for the press to kind of pump up. But I know that both Jane and Lana felt very badly about how the other might feel about that kind of publicity. But anyway, so the show begins to win all these awards and all these nominations, and it's getting a lot of notoriety. People are wondering, who's actually running the show? Well, I had a lot of influence. The third year we get ready to go up to Napa, we had two writers on the show who had been brought over from Flamingo Road because Lorimar had these guys under contract. Didn't David Selby come from and David Flamingo Se- Road? Right, David Selby came from Fl- Flamingo Road. And was it after it was canceled or something? Yeah, uh-huh. the show had just been taken off the air. And they said, we have this guy under contract. And Morgan Fairchild came over And Morgan too, Fairchild. And, can you, and they said, you're going to use him. And I was a little reluctant because we had our little, we had our, our system set up. We, we had our cast of characters and if it weren't for the fact that David was such a phenomenal actor and such a great guy and such a creative force, it would have been much more difficult. But these two writers that came over, they were a little upset. They were kind of, I don't want to say envious, but they had come from a show that failed and they were being put onto a staff of a successful show. And because I was a showrunner, we had a little bit of tension. And then eventually we became very friendly and the guys became valuable members of the team. And we're all getting ready to go up to Napa that third season. And historically, we had taken all the writers with us and a number of the production staff as well. I mean, even down to the secretaries. And Jane came to me one day and said, I really don't want those two guys going to Napa with us. And I said, why not? I just don't want them around. Did Earl know about this? Earl did not know about this. And I, it was my job to go tell Earl this. And I said, Earl... What, what are we going to do? Jane doesn't want these two guys going with us. And Earl said, well, tell them, tell them. And he was trying to think of something tell to tell who? them. Tell the two writers why they can't go up to Napa with us. And why didn't Jane want them to go? Just because she didn't like she them. Didn't, she didn't care for these two guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Earl said, tell them we can't get a hotel room for them. Oh, yeah, and right. And I, I said, Earl, that's not going to work. There are a thousand hotel rooms up there. Well, tell them that. And you know what? In, in retrospect... Earl didn't know what to do either. It was a very uncomfortable. Very awkward. Very awkward for everybody. So I went and told these guys, uh, guys, you can't go with us on location, even though they'd been planning it and they had friends in San Francisco they were going to visit. And these two guys became very angry and they called the head of the studio, Lee Rich. The screamer. Well, Lee and Merv Adelson owned Lorimar, basically. Lee Rich was known to be very vocal. 
he was a prick, frankly. Ooh, and and um, that's the first time you've used the, that word. Well, and the proof of it was, I got a phone call not twenty minutes later. Get over to Culver City. Lee wants to talk to you. So we're, I'm in Burbank. I drive over the hill, go to Culver City, into Lee Rich's office. There are a half a dozen people, and Lee screams at me. I'm disrupting the show. I've destroyed things. How dare I treat these two guys this way? It became very personal, and he threatened to fire me. And I said, you know what? You're the boss. You can do whatever you want. I do have a contract. This is just over these two. Over these two guys, right, right. So he must be—he must have been very friendly with them. No, he was very concerned that something prejudicial had been said about their lifestyle. Uh-huh. That, that's, you know, there were some personal issues. And I defended myself, I thought. And I called my agent immediately. And I said, Don, you've got to call Lee Rich and straighten this out. He completely misunderstands everything. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, I come from a background that's very tolerant, as we discussed in early podcasts. And my agent said, that's Lee Rich. I can't talk to him. And I then realized I had the wrong agent. So I played out the rest of my contract. I had a couple of shows on my contract to direct. I wrote a number. Uh, The two guys had quit the show, violated their contract, left behind some scripts that couldn't be shot. Guess who got to rewrite those? Garner and me. Ultimately, we were proven right about a lot of things. But the politics became such that I needed to look for another gig. And at that time, I had an attorney who took me to Creative Artists, Creative Artists Agency. And Bill Haber and some guys over there, uh, they were really the place to be at the time. And they wanted you. And they wanted me. Well, CAA was and still is one of the biggest agencies in town. Right. It's the place to be. And so next time... We will talk about where they took me and the Aaron Spelling years. And another word from our sponsor. Audible.com. Go to wherehollywoodhides.com. In the upper right-hand corner of any page on our website, you will see the audible.com link. They're offering a free audiobook download and, a three, and, a, and also a free 30-day trial to give you the chance to check out their service. It's an impeccable deal. It's just as easy as Amazon.com. Another of our sponsors, where we hope you'll do all your shopping through our link. Please support the podcast. Hey, thank you for those five-star ratings, everybody, on iTunes. It sure helps. So Keep them coming. Keep them coming. And uh, next time, we will talk about what Aaron's spelling was like in the late 80s. It was probably the most fascinating experience you can imagine. So until next time, this is Bob McCullough. And Suzanne Herrera McCullough. From Where Hollywood Hides. Bye. From Chillicothe's and Paducah's With their bazookas To get their names up in lights All armed with photos From local rotos With their hair in ribbons And legs in tights Hooray for Hollywood You have no way of knowing who You'll be another Papa Dion, your name and me on. If you get lucky, you could. Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top his five. Hooray for Hollywood! Hooray for Hollywood!